namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa Buddhang sarnang gachami, Dhammang sarnang gachami, Sangang sarnang gachami, Dutiampi buddhang sarnang gachami, Dutiampi dhammang sarnang gachami, Dutiampi sangang sarnang gachami, Tatiampi buddhang sarnang gachami, Tatiampi damang sarnang gachami, Tatiampi sangang sarnang gachami, Anatipata. Vairamani sikapadam samadhyami Adinadana Vairamani sikapadam samadhyami Abrahmacharya Vairamani sikapadam samadhyami Musawada Vairamani sikapadam samadhyami Sura Maria Majapamadatana Vairamani sikapadam samadhyami Those who are taking the precepts, please continue. Last week, we began looking at the refrain in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Discourse on Mindfulness. And it's the refrain that comes after each section of meditative instructions. As I mentioned, it 
it recurs 13 different times in the sutta, so this refrain is quite important. And the first part of it, which we discussed, was to look at each of the four mindful abidings, the four arenas of mindfulness. That is the body, feelings, the mind and mind states, and the different elements of mind and body, the dhammas. The Buddha instructed to look at them internally within ourselves, to look at them externally, and both. That's what we discussed at some length last week. Practicing in this way, contemplating internally, externally, both, helps keep us centered in ourselves, balanced in terms of an inner and outer awareness so that we don't get completely self-absorbed, and also open to the transforming wisdom of emptiness, that is, emptiness of self. So tonight I'd like to continue with the next line in the refrain, the next line of these teachings. And it really will be a continuation of what Sky talked about on Saturday night. Because the second part of the refrain tells us to abide contemplating the arising, the passing away, and both the arising and passing away of all objects of experience. So again, remember, the Buddha is saying this very many times. Abide contemplating the arising, the passing away, both the arising and passing away of whatever arises in our experience. That this is the path to awakening, as he said. At the turn of the last century, in the early 1900s, there was a very renowned Burmese monk, both meditation master and great scholar. His name was Lady Sayadaw. That's L-E-D-I. He said that not seeing arising and passing away of phenomena, not seeing it is ignorance. While seeing all phenomena is impermanent, is the doorway to all the stages of insight and awakening. So this is important. Training ourselves to see, to contemplate, to reflect on how all experience has this nature to arise, to pass away. The Buddha emphasized the importance of this directly in so many of the suttas, the discourses. I'll just quote a few. He said, bhikkhus, which is all of us, all of us practicing, when the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated, it eliminates all sensual lust, it eliminates all ignorance, it uproots the conceit, I am. Not bad. <laughs> For a simple contemplation on impermanence, uprooting all sensual lust, all ignorance, and uprooting the conceit, I am. In another place, the Buddha said, it's better to live a single day 
seeing the momentary arising and passing of phenomena, than to live a hundred years without seeing it. So that's a rather radical statement. And what is that telling us about all we do and value in our lives and where we put our energy? The Buddha is saying it's more valuable to see the arising and passing away for a single day than a hundred years without seeing it. In another way, you know, so much uh, in the Buddha's teachings is about the law of karma, the fact that our actions have consequences, that our actions are not happening in a vacuum, that actions bring results. And the Buddha laid out the different kinds of results, the different power of certain actions. You know, so he described the fruit of generosity as being so great, and in giving to enlightened beings, beings who have purified their minds. Now, tremendously good karma, because it's their purity actually purifies the gift. So there's great benefit from that. He said more powerful than giving something to the Buddha and the whole order of enlightened monks and nuns would be to be absorbed in feeling and thought of loving-kindness for just one moment. So he's saying the power of the mind being absorbed in metta, in loving-kindness, much more powerful than even giving gifts to the Buddha himself and the order of enlightened beings. And he said many times more powerful in the mind absorbed in metta with greater karmic consequences, greater karmic benefit, is the seeing into the arising and passing of phenomena. So even as you struggle through all the ups and downs of your practice, and you know, you're enthusiastic and you're discouraged and you're bored and all of it, I mean, the work that you're doing in training your mind to see this has tremendous consequences. Now, Ananda was uh, a cousin of the Buddha, and he was uh, a monk in the order, and he was very beloved of everyone. He was the attendant to the Buddha for most of uh, his life. So this is a little uh, teaching from uh, the suttas, from the discourses themselves said, at one time Ananda was recounting the many wonderful qualities of the Buddha. So he was going on and on praising the Buddha. And the Buddha, and he referred to himself, as you probably know, as the Tathagata. That was was the, the word that he used to refer to himself. So the Buddha said in reply, after hearing all these praises, that being so, Ananda, remember this too, as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata, of himself. For the Tathagata, feelings are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Perceptions are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. 
thoughts are known as they arise, as they're present, as they disappear. Remember this too, Ananda, as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. And I like that because it's so down to earth. I mean, there may be all these wonderful, mystical, magical qualities that the Buddha had. And he's saying, remember this too, the perception, the experience of impermanence, of things arising and passing away. Remember this too as a wonderful and marvelous quality. So this is what we're doing. We're, we're cultivating this quality within ourselves. In the Buddha's very first teaching on selflessness, you know, this teaching on anatta, the, the, the jewel of the teachings to the, to the five ascetics, who he had been practicing with before his enlightenment. In teaching them, the Buddha goes through each of the aggregates of existence, you know, material elements and feelings and perceptions and mental formations and consciousness. And he points out with each of them their impermanence. Going further and saying, what is impermanent is unreliable, is unsatisfying, because it doesn't last. Not that it may not be pleasant, but it's unreliable because it's continually changing. And that what is unreliable and unsatisfying cannot truly be considered I or mine. Okay, so the Buddha went through this teaching and they all got enlightened. <laughs> How'd you do? <laughs> so how does this happen? You know, what, what is the power of that teaching? To really go through all elements of experience, you know, with what, with what Whichever model you like to use, here the Buddha was using the model of the aggregates. But what's the power of the teaching of going through all the aspects of our experience and contemplating, seeing, reflecting on their impermanence? It says in the discourses, when one sees deeply that all that is subject to arising, all that is subject to arising, which is everything we experience. Everything that is subject to arising is also subject to cessation, to passing away. When one sees this deeply, one becomes disenchanted. Becoming disenchanted, one becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, the mind is liberated. But right here we have a bit of a problem. Because when we hear these words in English, you know, disenchanted, disillusioned, dispassionate, it doesn't sound all that appealing. You know, in English, these words have quite negative connotations. You know, somebody's disenchanted with something or disillusioned. You know, it's not. It's not a very bright feeling that we get. 
But I think it's worth looking at the meaning of these words, not simply the popular connotation, but to really look deeper at what they're, at what they're saying. Not, a, not as an abstraction, but really in our experience of them, because it will reveal their connection to freedom, the freedom the Buddha was talking about. Becoming disenchanted means breaking the spell of enchantment. We are all enchanted by the appearances of this world. It's like we're under a spell. Becoming disenchanted actually means waking up into a fuller and deeper reality. You know, it's the happy ending of so many fairy tales. You know, where somehow they're released from the enchantment. That's what the Buddha is pointing to. Disillusioned is not the same as being discouraged or disappointed. You know, as we might usually associate it with that state. Being disillusioned is a reconnection with what is true, with what is free of illusion. And dispassionate does not mean indifference or apathy. And the Buddha says through becoming disenchanted, we become dispassionate. Through dispassion, we become free. Dispassion does not mean apathy, it does not mean indifference. Rather, it's that quality of mind of great openness and great equanimity, free of grasping, free of clinging. A sustained contemplation on impermanence leads to a shift in the way we experience reality. We see through the illusion, through the enchantment of stable existence, both in what is perceived and also what is perceiving. Now we're living in the world, the worldview that things are solid and stable and fixed more or less. Seeing deeply the arising and passing of phenomena radically reshapes our understanding of the world. Just think of the last time you went to a really good movie. You know, you go to the movie, we get really absorbed in the story, if it's good. There's lots of feeling, lots of emotion, and we're in it. We're in that reality. Now, now sometimes you might be in all that. I have a particular remembrance of this. Uh, I don't know that you saw a couple of years ago the movie Black Hawk Down. It, it was about... The, the military operation in Somalia where that went awry. But the whole movie, I mean, it was intensely violent for the whole time, and one was really into it. And happened to look up and just see the beam of light being projected on the screen. 
And in that moment realized nothing at all was happening, was really happening. There was nobody getting killed, there was no war going on. It was all just the projection of light and color on a screen creating all these images and then we get caught. And we get seduced into the reality of that. When at least in that context, nothing was really happening at all. So I want to read something to you. It's, it's a little long, so you need to kind of settle in. And, but I really like this. And it has a, it has a surprise ending. So just kind of listen carefully, and it's it's kind it's a it's a scientific description, one scientific description of our world. Okay, so consider a world without consciousness. The darkness is a bubbling cauldron of energy, and vibrating matter locked in the dance of thermal agitation. Through shared electrons, or the strange attraction of unlike charges, quivering molecules not free to roam absorb and emit their characteristic packages of energy with the surrounding fog. Free gas molecules, almost oblivious to gravity, but buffeted in all directions by their neighbors, form swirling turbulent flows or march in zones of compression and expansion. A massive solar flux and cosmic radiation from events long past crisscross space with their radiant energy and silently mix with the thermal glow of living creatures. Within the warmth of their sticky protein bodies, the dim glow of consciousness is emerging to impose its own brand of organization on this turbulent mix of energy and matter. The active filter of consciousness illuminates the darkness, discards all irrelevant radiation, and in a grand transmutation converts and amplifies the relevant. Dead molecules erupt into flavors of bitterness or sweetness. Electromagnetic frequencies burst with color. Hapless air pressure waves become the laughter of children. And the impact of a passing molecule fills a conscious mind with the aroma of roses on a warm summer afternoon. So what is our reality? There are so many different levels at which things can be experienced. And yet the tendency of our mind is to take just the most obvious, the most apparent, the most superficial, and say, yes, this is what's happening, this is what's real. So it's not to suggest that we don't engage 
with the movies and the dramas of our lives, or the stories we tell about ourselves or others, or the stories we make up about our meditation experience. But when we see on a deeper level, when we train our perception, when we refine our perception and see on a deeper level, contemplating the arising and the passing, in every moment of experience, then we don't drown in reactivity and suffering. We're opening up an entirely different level of understanding of ourselves, of others, of the world. So the question then is, how can we practice this liberating contemplation on impermanence? Now this meditation that the Buddha gave so much emphasis to. We can be mindful of impermanence on many levels, both internally and externally. Wisdom can arise when we pay attention to impermanence in ways that we already know, but mostly overlook. So wisdom is very available to us when we pay attention in some very obvious ways. <clears throat> we see very clearly the changes that are going on in nature all the time, all around us. Climate change, weather patterns, on a larger scale, you know, the evolution of species, the extinction of species. It's all happening, it's all there for us to observe if we pay attention. We see the changes in society. You know, on a collective level, the rise and fall of civilizations and cultures. Anyone with any grasp of history sees all the great civilizations have come into being, have grown, have declined, and passed away. Now, I, I read earlier of the Buddha's teachings how perception of impermanence uproots the conceit, I am. I think this can happen on a national level as well as a personal level. You know, when we believe that our ascendance, our wealth, our power will always be there, then we really are strengthening the sense of the national ego. And then we often respond in, to events in ways that are not that helpful. Understanding the inevitable rise and fall of our own culture, I think brings about a very important quality of humility, uh, which is as applicable in international relations as in interpersonal ones. It really fosters the growth of compassion. So we see the impermanence on this macro scale. We see it on the personal level in society. You know, we see the impermanence 
of generations of people just being born and living their lives and dying. New England is so uh, such a wonderful place to contemplate this. You know, as you walk through the woods, so many places in New England you see these old stone walls and the stone foundations of buildings and now only trees are growing up through those foundations. You know, it's just not hard to imagine all the people, you know, who built those walls and lived there and now are no longer there and the houses have crumbled. What is left? You know, where are they now? So often our awareness of this impermanence, our awareness of death, of life and death, of generations, so often our awareness of it seems to be limited to other people. We kind of get that other people will die. But we don't often really deeply consider our own death. You know, profoundly. So that we really understand that yeah, this, this body is going to die too. And in this culture particularly, for most people this would probably be considered morbid. You know, why would you want to think about your death? And yet death, the reflection on death, this contemplation of impermanence, is such a powerful tool for letting go of attachment, letting go of clinging. Those of you old enough probably remember the books of uh, Carlos Castaneda and the teachings of Don Juan. They were popular in the Ice Age. <laughs> Very popular. <laughs> and they're, they're wonderful teachings of just kind of from the native, the native American shamanistic tradition. You know, Don Juan was this great master and he was teaching Carlos. So I just want to read this because it's, it's just expressed so beautifully. So this is Don Juan, this is Carlos speaking. Don Juan asked me to tell him what had been the most natural reaction I had in moments of stress, frustration, and disappointment before I became an apprentice. And in this warrior tradition, he said, Don Juan said that his own reaction had been wrath. I told him that mine had been self-pity. Although you were not aware of it, Don Juan said, you had to work your head off to make that feeling a natural one. By now there is no way for you to recollect the immense effort that you needed to establish self-pity as a feature of your island. Self-pity bore witness to everything you did. It was just at your fingertips ready to advise you. Death is considered by a warrior to be a more amenable advisor, which can also be brought to bear witness on everything one does, just like self-pity or wrath. Obviously, after an untold struggle, you had learned to feel sorry for yourself. But you can also learn in the same way to feel your impending end. 
unless you, unless you can learn to have the idea of your death at your fingertips. As an advisor, self-pity is nothing in comparison to death. It's such a great teaching. Now, what is it that we have as our advisor? We see the changes in nature, we see the changes in civilization, we see the changes of generations being born and dying, we see the changes of life and death, people we know. We see the changing nature of our relationships, you know, our work, and most intimately our own minds and bodies. This is a thought fragment from Ryokan, who was the great 18th century Japanese hermit, poet, monk, player with children. You know, he just was wonderful. So he wrote, late at night, listening to the winter rain, recalling my youth, was it only a dream? Was I really young once? <laughs> and again, I think one has to be a certain age to kind of have this reflection, but you will all get there <laughs> if, if you live long enough. <laughs> but it feels like that. You know, just this last year, I turned 60. <laughs> What happened? <laughs> Just to reflect on that. This truth of impermanence is so obvious. It is all around us when we look. What is so surprising, given the impermanence that shows itself you know, everywhere we look, is that we still find change surprising. That's what's surprising. <laughs> that somehow we still count on things staying a certain way. Or at least if they're going to change, that they'll change the way we want them to. You know. Just in the meditation, this is something that has happened to me countless times. So I think you'll probably find it familiar as well. How many times do you have a sitting where it's calm and concentrated and still? You know, it's what we would call a good sitting. And then we get up fully expecting to pick up right where we left off when we come back. Maybe it hasn't happened to you. <laughs> but this has been such a strong pattern in my mind. I think, oh yeah, well, it's this sitting was good, I'll just do my walking, come back, and it'll be the same way. And it rarely is. So we need to see clearly. We really need to contemplate this truth of change. When the mindfulness is strong, 
when we pay careful attention, we see that everything is continually disappearing and new things arising in every single moment. It's not only in each day or in each hour. It is really moment to moment. When you leave the hall, if you can remember between now and the time you leave, the end of the talk, you leave the hall. Just pay attention to the changing nature of the forms and colors that pass you know, as you're walking by. Pay attention to the changing nature of the sensations in the body. Pay attention to the flow of sounds, the changing sounds of the other people leaving the room. We can see so clearly that every moment things are arising and passing, arising and passing, arising and passing. There is no stability. What happens to each of these arising experiences? Do they last? The truth of this changing nature is so obvious that mostly we have stopped paying attention to it. And yet the Buddha is telling us it's that perception of change that frees the mind. As the mindfulness, as the concentration gets stronger, we begin to see change on a more and more microscopic level. It's what I've called, I think, you know, previously the NPMs, right? the noticings per minute. They get very high. We begin to see for ourselves that everything that has seemed stable, has seemed solid, is actually in a state of constant flux. It's like looking at a familiar object under a high-power microscope. It's a whole different reality. Sometimes this perception of change can get so refined, and things are happening so quickly, that it feels we can't even get to the object quickly enough. By the time we get to it, it's gone. You know, and when the practice is at this stage, sometimes people feel their mindfulness is no, is no longer good, that their practice has gotten weaker. Because they can't, the mind's not landing on anything. So it's just to know when this happens that it really is a refinement of the perception of change. We begin to see that on one level, like the level of the movie, on one level, there's not much there. You know, we have created a whole reality based on a superficial perception. As we look deeper, it's just this dance of mind-body energies. In one sutta, the Buddha makes the distinction between the establishment of mindfulness and the development of mindfulness. It's two different things. The establishment of mindfulness is the simple awareness of what it is that's arising. So this is the foundation of our practice. Yeah, a breath, a thought, a sound. Right? We're aware of what it is that's arising. The development of mindfulness 
is when the emphasis shifts from the content of what arises to the process of change itself, where we're less concerned with what it is that arises and we're more connected to the flow of change. Seeing that whatever is arising is also passing. It's like the current of a river or water over a waterfall. Why is this so important? Why is it emphasized so much? When we see this repeatedly, when we see this changing nature, this flow of phenomena over and over again, when we're keyed in to that level of process rather than content, the mind reorients. It reorients towards care and loving-kindness rather than attachment. We see attachment doesn't make sense because of the truth of change. The mind reorients towards letting go rather than clinging. It reorients towards the possibility of freedom, of living in a free way. So just as a meditative exercise, you know, it's one way of of refining your practice of this. If you have a sitting where the mindfulness and concentration feels stable, more or less, it's sometimes helpful to really look at which aspect of impermanence is most apparent. For example, you're sitting, you're feeling the breath open to the range of experience. Is the mind more aware of new objects arising? You know, and before you see that particular experience disappear, something else has arisen, and then something else has arisen, something else has arisen. So sometimes we're seeing impermanence from the perspective of arisings. Sometimes you may be sitting in different this flow of experience, and you will be experiencing things disappearing all the time, and not seeing them arise. It's just, oh, this disappears. And you don't see the next one arise, and then that one disappears, and you don't see the next one arise, but see it disappear. So sometimes we're seeing the dissolution side of things, and sometimes both. Okay, listen very carefully to this. It's not that any one of these perceptions is the right one. So don't think, oh, I'm supposed to see it this way, or I'm supposed to see it that way. It's simply to pay attention to how you are experiencing it. Seeing how we're perceiving the changing nature is a way of refining our attention. And this is the training that we're undertaking. Now, when we were studying with Saira Upandita, one of the ways we would report to him, and he, he required it, 
we would need to say what it was that was arising in the sitting. You know, I was aware of the rising, the falling, aware of a sound, a thought, whatever it was. And then also say what happened to the object as we were aware of it. Right? So we, we would be reporting on the behavior of the object. What that did was it really compelled a very close attention because if we weren't paying attention, there would be no way of knowing what happened to the object. Right? So a sound, a thought, a sensation, whatever it is, ordinary objects of experience, nothing fancy, just the very ordinary parts of our meditation, but looking carefully enough so that we see what happens. We see the change very directly, very intimately. There was an occasion in the time of the Buddha when a layman, his name was Mahanama, approached the Buddha and asked, in what way, venerable sir, is a lay follower accomplished in wisdom? I think this is an appropriate question for us. In what way is a lay follower accomplished in wisdom? The Buddha said, here, Mahanama, a lay follower is wise. He or she possesses wisdom directed to arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative, leading to the complete destruction of suffering. In that way, a lay follower is accomplished in wisdom. So it always comes back to this. Is anybody still not clear about what to do? <laughs> and the Buddha is saying it from so many different sides. Pay attention to the impermanence. Pay attention to the arising and passing of phenomena. But it is also important to acknowledge when we're not in a place of clear seeing, when we're lost in the hindrances, or the mind is distracted. We're lost in our stories. Because from time to time, the mind might be like that. <laughs> so at that time, we need to practice what is called purification of mind. Just the mental composure and that embodied presence I spoke of last week. Because in the midst of difficulties in practice, where we can't see so clearly, we establish that composure to some extent, and it cuts through our identification with those states. And it actually allows us to bring the wisdom mind right into the place of difficulties. So what grows from this ground of wisdom at whatever level we're entering? What grows from the ground of wisdom is what we have called, and what is called in Buddhism, bodhicitta. You know, it's that very rare flower of aspiration that our practice 
be for the benefit of all beings. The understanding that we're not practicing just for ourselves. May my practice, may my life be for the benefit of all. This is the aspiration of bodhicitta. And as we see more clearly the momentary arisings, the momentary changing nature of all phenomena, what happens? The mind lets go. In letting go of grasping, in letting go of clinging, in letting go of self-referencing, we really can water this seed of bodhicitta within us. I'd like to end with a very straightforward teaching. It's from the Tibetan tradition. Uh, it's called the Seven Point Mind Training by Atisha. This kind of sums up everything you have to do. Consider all phenomena to be dreams. Be grateful to everyone. Don't be swayed by outer circumstances. Don't brood over the faults of others. Explore the nature of unborn awareness. At all times, simply rely on a joyful mind. Don't expect a standing ovation. <laughs> So let's sit for a few minutes. Just now, as you're sitting, pay attention to the changing nature of what's arising. The sounds, the sensations, the feelings within a single breath. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.